Please pray with me. Lord, we do pray that the words you have spoken and that are recorded here in the Gospel of Luke would speak to us this morning, make them alive and real. Lord, give us a discerning and receptive mind, an open and receiving heart. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Still kind of new to this liturgy thing. I think I'll probably get a, they'll probably, the liturgy police will issue me a citation. I'm, they're always here. They're always in plain clothes, too, by the way. You, you just never know when they're lurking. Well, um, we're reading, as usual, in year B in the gospel lesson from the gospel according to Luke. And when Luke introduced his gospel way back in chapter 1, this is what he said. He said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is what Luke says basically in his opening of his gospel. I went out and I researched the life of Jesus by speaking to the eyewitnesses. I tend to agree with Canon uh, Bailey who says that uh, probably one of his main resources for this gospel was the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's why we have her song, and we have that account of what happened when she went to see Elizabeth. And so I think Mary is among those that Luke consulted. So I went out and I researched the life of Jesus by speaking to the eyewitnesses, and then I took that information and I put it into an orderly account so that you can be certain of the things that you've been taught about Jesus. And sometimes, because of that, that research, it seems that Luke has, done, has some random sayings or actions of Jesus not attached to any larger narrative, but it's like he's got them written on post-it notes. And I can just see him, you know, in his study with a parchment and quill in hand and then these little yellow post-it notes all around his desk as he's, oh yeah, I got to get that saying of Jesus or that thing that Jesus did. I got to get that into the story I want Theophilus to know about. And prompted by the Holy Spirit, he just drops them into the story where he has space. And that's kind of what today's reading sounds like if we come at it that way. We have a snippet of the disciples asking to have their faith increased, juxtaposed over against a parable that's rooted in sort of master-servant interactions in a farming community. And it just seems to make no sense at all. Why are these two things together? But brothers and sisters, there really is a connection between these two disparate sayings, and it all centers around the topic of faith. It all centers around the topic of faith. Now, there is so much misunderstanding in the world and in the church about what Christians mean when we use that word faith. There is misunderstanding in the world and in the church. You know, the angry new atheist sought to redefine the terms of the debate along the lines of what Mark Twain has said was a schoolboy's response to uh, what, when a schoolboy was asked to define faith, Mark Twain says he responded along these lines, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. And that's really what 
uh, what the, the new atheists uh, have claimed that Christians believe. And I'm afraid that I think some Christians give them reason to think that. So the world sees faith as an anti-intellectual, counterfactual belief. Faith is an anti-intellectual, counterfactual belief. And unfortunately, that's a lot of uh, a way, the way a lot of Christians talk about their faith. And I have to tell you that if that is indeed what faith is, then I am on the side of the angry new atheists. But it's not what it's about. So what does Luke's gospel in general and Jesus in particular teach about that word faith? What do we mean by that word faith? Well, to begin with, the very request the disciples make to have their faith increase, increase our faith, reveals that they have misunderstood faith. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you, would say, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So what's going on in that request? Well, it seems that the disciples conceive of faith as some sort of independent quality that you can either have a lot of or a little of, kind of like the way you have a battery icon on your smartphone. You know, and, it's, and the little green line gets shorter and shorter, and so they're saying, Lord, recharge our faith. And that's, that's why Jesus gives, and if we looked at the Greek syntax of verse 6 where Jesus replies, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, it's actually demonstrating or conveying annoyance in his response. So could Jesus be annoyed? Evidently he could be. He was annoyed at his disciples. And so basically what he's saying is, hey, it's not like you have to have your faith capacitor charged up to live the life that I am calling you to. That's not what this is about. And you know, that same misunderstanding exists among Christians today. Faith is seen as a sort of spiritual power that you can, that you can use to manipulate the world and maybe even God with. Faith is seen by some Christians as a sort of spiritual mojo, mojo, <laughs> that you can manipulate the world and manipulate even God with, if you have enough of it. Well, brothers and sisters, that is not faith. That is the force from Star Wars. <laughs> Obi-Wan, increase our metachlorians. And only the geek among you shall receive that saying. <laughs> <laughs> Misunderstanding faith like this. This misunderstanding leads to a type of works righteousness in other words, people respond to, uh, to this understanding of faith. And like, you, you know, if you're not getting what you're wanting via faith, well, you just aren't trying hard enough to believe the things that ain't so. You're just not trying hard enough to believe the things that ain't so. You need to bootstrap your faith muscle or whatever it is and just bear down and grit your teeth and believe harder, doggone it. So you didn't get your prayer answered? Well, you just didn't have enough faith. Your faith meter was way down. You didn't receive that healing you want? Well, you obviously just aren't trying hard enough to believe. You're not confessing. You're not giving a positive confession. Oh, my gosh. Back in the 80s, people, Christians in uh, <laughs> college run around certain groups that I ran around with. You know, 106 degree temperature. 
I'm claiming the healing. <laughs> no, you're sick and delusional. So, but I want you to see what happens when you receive the under, this misunderstanding of faith, when that becomes your adopted view of faith, what it does is it shifts the locus of action from the sovereign living God to me, the believer. In other words, all of this is dependent on how good I can do this, how hard I can believe. And that is literally works righteousness. The problem with this kind of misunderstanding is that it is exactly opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that God does for me what I can't do for myself. The gospel is not that I didn't try hard enough to believe. And so associated with that misconception of belief or of faith is all kinds of blaming and shaming. Blaming and shaming. You just, what it really gets, what really gets communicated is if you didn't get that prayer answered, you're just not good enough Christian. You should have just tried harder. You need, this is called bigger hammer theology. You just needed a bigger hammer. This is devastating theology. It is corrupting theology. My best friend um, was talking to me just this past week, telling me the story of a conversation that he had with a woman who was then in her 40s in his very first parish. She had been born blind. And when she was nine years old, her mother took her to a healing ministry gathering that was uh, put on by a well-known TV preacher. And her mama brought her up to the healing line, and the TV preacher came up, and he laid his hands on her, and he prayed, and he asked her, can you see? And she said, no. And my friend Greg said, that's when this middle-aged woman began weeping because the televangelist told her, it's your fault you're not worthy. And because of what Oral Roberts said to that young girl, she was scarred for the rest of her life by that. That's false doctrine. And the result of that is that it turns people away from the faith. So what faith really and ultimately is about is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And every relationship you have ever been in requires faith. Every relationship requires faith. We risk trusting that other person. We usually do it by gathering information about that person based on the testimony of our friends and our own observations. And then we take the decision to trust the person with our limited knowledge of that individual. And the amazing thing happens, and the way that God has set up the relational universe is so that when we take that first step of trust, we are rewarded with a deeper knowledge of that person that we could not have had had we not risked trusting them in the first place. I have permission to tell this story. Jason and Rebecca's epistolatory romance. <laughs> So, there, my, my son-in-law, Jason, and my daughter, Rebecca, uh, it was very, how very Jane Austen of them to begin their romance via letter. So, they were introduced to one another in a sort of a modern Jane Austen way by Tom Boast via Facebook. Oh, the Reverend Thomas Boast introduces... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
And so Jason, after being introduced, Facebook Rebecca with a message. And Rebecca had just gotten a new job with um, the, oh, golly, what is the, uh, oh, it, it, well, it's a, a think tanky thing out in uh, Colorado Springs. It's a smart person thing I don't know anything about out in uh, uh, Colorado Springs. And she was so excited to be uh, working for this organization. And so she was kind of giddy, and she responded to Jason's uh, Facebook with an email that was rather long and, and very, very happy. And, and, she said, and she, after she sent... After she sent it, it was like, oh, oh, I hope he doesn't think that was weird. You know, <laughs> all that long, that long uh, email. Well, what happened was that Jason responded with an equally long email as well. Now, neither one of these people have ever met each other. And so, and so then Jason started calling Rebecca. And then a few weeks after that, Jason said, well, you know, the World Beer Festival is in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Colorado Springs is an hour and 30 minutes away, and I'm coming up with my friends to the World Beer Festival in Denver, Colorado. Why don't you just, you know, drive down, and we can meet, and we'll meet together there. Well, what it turned out was that the, what Jason said yesterday is that I never, I was, I went under the guise of going to the World Beer Festival. They, he never went, and Rebecca never went. And so his friends went and had a great time, evidently, but he went and spent time with Rebecca during that time. And then he drove back the uh, hour and a half to uh, Colorado Springs, and then the next day they spent all day together. Now, what happened in that story? What happened was that it begins with a limited knowledge of that other person. But, be, but by the testimony of Tom Boast, who I think is fairly reliable, they were introduced, and they both took a step of trust. Every relationship you've ever had begins that way. Two weeks uh, after uh, that meeting, by the way, that's when Jason called her. I think, I think they FaceTimed. He said, um, I'm officially asking if you would be my girlfriend. So. <laughs> and now we are three grandchildren later. So in Luke's gospel, faith is always about one's trust and confidence in a person, in Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, faith is about trusting a person, trusting Jesus. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 and following, some friends of a paralytic man are so confident in Jesus, they remove the tiles from a roof and of a building where he is teaching, and they can't get to him. And by four ropes, they let their, the friend down on a stretcher in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Not faith as some sort of battery meter, but your persistent confidence that I can be your healer. I will answer that. You have trusted me. And then in Luke chapter 7, a great story, and Jesus says, I've, seen not, I've not seen so great a faith, not even in Israel, when a Roman centurion sends messengers to Jesus because the centurion's servant is sick, and he sends messengers to Jesus, and those messengers say, Lord, our, 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 the centurion is a righteous man, and he's a lover of our people. The, the messengers were, were, uh, were Jewish leaders. And, and he says that 
He knows that you don't even have to come to his house. All you have to do is to speak the word, and this servant will be healed. That is trust in Jesus to be able to do what he needs to do. And then I love just a little later in chapter 7, we're in a home of a Pharisee, and Jesus is reclining at the table, and all of a sudden, a sinful woman, we're told, crashes the party. And she comes, and she kneels behind Jesus' feet and begins to let down her hair and begins to weep. And those hot tears fall on Jesus' feet, and she breaks open a jar of fragrant ointment and spreads them on Jesus' feet. And with her hair, she begins to wash his feet and then kiss his feet. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Faith not as a capacitor or a battery to be charged, but it's your confidence that I would allow you to touch me, your confidence that I would love you, your confidence in me is rewarded. Your sins are forgiven. Faith, faith is like jumping off the diving board in the deep end of the pool to your father who is calling you in and waiting to catch you. It's trusting daddy in a scary situation. I remember being that little boy on the end of the diving board and my dad saying, well, he said my nickname then was Sandy. Sandy, I'm right here. See, I'm right here. I've got you. I've got you. I know it looks deep and scary out where I am, but just keep your eyes on me and go. And I'm right here. I'll catch you. And because I knew I could trust my dad, I launched myself into the insubstantial air, and I landed with a splash and a gasp and a grin in the strong, strong arms of my father. And what had been terrifying turned to joy and courage, and I said, let's do that again. How faith is demonstrated in the New Testament is where that parable comes in. It's demonstrated in the ordinary, mundane life of discipleship. Faith is not revealed in the spectacular, Jesus says. It is revealed in the ordinary. And so he tells the parable, which of you having a servant who's out plowing, and when he comes in for plowing, will not say to your servant, go and prepare a meal for me, dress properly, then come and serve me. And then after you've served me, then you can eat and drink. And when you, when you have done that, do you give special favors to that servant for doing his job? That's what it says, do you thank your servant? But that brings up our kind of polite structure. And so it's more like, do you expect special favors for just doing your job? And so, even so with you, when you have done all that you should have done, just say we are unworthy servants. In other words, this is not a a put-down. This is just live the ordinary life of discipleship. Faith is just doing your job. It's just doing your duty. And most of the time, we demonstrate our trust and confidence in Jesus by the normal practices of faithfulness. It's just loving and serving Jesus and our neighbor. It's cooking burgers on the grill. It's not spectacular. It doesn't earn us an attaboy. 
It's just reading God's word, saying our prayers, sharing our faith, serving the poor, coming to church on Sunday, and doing that even when we don't feel like it. And regardless of the state of the world around us, we keep doing it. And that's how we demonstrate our trust in Jesus. Regardless of the appearance, given our choices in this election cycle, that our nation is under the active judgment of God, regardless of my own personal struggles, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know in whom I have believed, St. Paul said in his letter to Timothy today. I know in whom I have trusted. And I trust Jesus who died and rose again for me. And so we could sing with the prophet Habakkuk, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Because I trust him, regardless of what's going around me. Faithfulness means that we do the ordinary stuff, and God is definitely free to do extraordinary stuff. And that's one of the things I love about the Anglican way of following Jesus. Again, I will just repeat myself, and it's not even me, it's Thomas McKenzie, but he said, Thomas McKenzie said, Anglicanism is not God's favorite way, it's just my favorite way. (laughs) And I love it because it's just so darned ordinary. It's just so ordinary. It's just saying your prayers, going to church, loving Jesus, serving the poor, reading your Bible. It's just ordinary. But the wonderful thing is in the midst of the ordinary way of following Jesus in this tradition, God repeatedly shows up and does extraordinary things. We do the ordinary, and God is free to do the extraordinary. Every Sunday, when we have guests particularly, and we are fencing the table a little more vigorously, we say that all baptized Christians who come with faith and repentance are welcome at the Lord's table. And when we say we come in faith, we mean trusting in a person. We're not, in other words, all who come with faith and repentance, it's not faith in magic bread and wine. It's faith in a person. It means that I come trusting Jesus. And at this table, through this bread and wine, Jesus is saying to us, See, I'm right here. I've got you. I've got you. I know it looks deep and scary out where I am. But just keep your eyes on me and go. I'm right here. I'll catch you. And we leap through the insubstantial air into his strong, strong arms, and we land gasping and grinning, and we are given the joy and courage to say, let's do that again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.